Artists Worldwide. So what's happening, everybody? Welcome to another exciting episode of Global Brothers Podcast. Glad to have you all here with us. It's your boy, the Dandy, my man, Big Heat. What's cracking, brother? My brother, how you doing, man? Boom. Yo, man, dope show today. You know I mean? We're going to be flying high. You know what? Before I introduce this guest, like, I was thinking back to, like, white men can't jump. Remember them two dudes? <laughs> Willie? Come on, you know what I'm talking about, Heath? Flight and Willie. All right, you gonna start off with that. I was like, "Yo, right. my man look like flight, yo," and then like see him dunk like, like yeah, look at that. he got that flight. Okay, let's let's do this. Thing. So yeah, you can't do that with Jr. on the call. I'm gonna hear about this one after that. You're gonna call me flight with. With no hey, further ado, hey. man, yo, we got we got a we got a um, you know, we got like a uh, underground legend really in the building, man. Uh, you know, uh, ups. Mensa Bonsu has 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 I played ball uh, at like the highest levels, both university George Washington, as well as uh, professionally all over the world, which is why we call this episode Globetrotter. And uh, now, not even forty years old, my man is a executive in the NBA. So 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 pleased and privileged to have you with us, pops. Welcome to Global Brothers Podcast. Thank you, man. Thank you. Appreciate you for having me, man. Happy to be here. Pops, uh, doing a little research on uh, preparing for this uh, this episode, man. Mm-hmm. Wow, how things come full circle. Uh, man, I saw you play in high school, man. Stop uh, it. Bruh, oh, wait, this, this classic? Okay. I saw you there, but I probably saw you... Before then, because I was out in, uh, I used to coach uh, college basketball, and I coached at a, a Division two university, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, in Pitts, outside of Pittsburgh called Slippery Rock University. Right. And when I was there, I was in Philly a lot, and there was a tournament at McGonagall Hall. Okay. And oh my goodness, I saw you play probably three games in that tournament. Wow. Wasn't recruiting, of course, right? <laughs> <laughs> But there was so much talent because I remember Jameer Nelson was at um, U, uh, St. Joe's at the time. Right. So me and him had right. a conversation. But I spent weeks in Philly, so I saw you play quite a few times. Wow, that's crazy. That is yeah. so wild. And uh, Roland Houston is a good friend of mine. All those guys, man. Really? I was really connected to Philly basketball back then. I was. I did most of my recruiting there. So. Wow. Uh, yeah, it just it just all hit me when I start doing research. I'm like, wow! And then of course, the wow, that's crazy. It's, it's definitely a small world. That's that's cool, man. Yeah. So, um, we welcome you to the show, brother. Um, we see we see your moves. We see a lot of the things that you're doing. Uh, but please, um, you got a great story. So tell us, um, give us your teenage years, your adolescent years, how you started. Oh wow! It's, so for me. You know, I don't sound like it, but I was born and raised in London, England. And, um, you know, as a, as a preteen, teenager, you know, sports was my life. And to say that, my next statement is going to make it, is going to surprise you. Sports was my life, but basketball wasn't um, high on that list. You know, I, I ran track, I played soccer. Um, I got introduced to basketball at the age of 12 or 13. And... You know, I had to travel about an hour 
after school every day just to make it to, to practice. And, you know, for a sport that, that I wasn't as committed to, um, traveling an hour every day, you know, out of my way was, um, was going to be a tall task. And so, you know, there was, I remember probably when I was 14, um, I just stopped going. Well, I didn't just stop going. My dad, my grades started to slip and my dad was like, you can't, you can't do it anymore. You know, my homework was, was suffering and, you know, my work in general was taking a hit. So, you know, I just focused on track and playing and playing soccer. And I remember my coach, my coach who introduced me to the game, who, you know, anybody who knows me knows that he's one of my biggest influences, you know, when it comes to basketball. And, you know, he asked me if I was serious about the game, would I, would I, would I attend his school? He was a math teacher also at this um, junior high um, where, I would, where I practice. And somebody who's not really serious about a sport it was an all-boys school. I was young, impressionable. You know, I wanted to go where my friends went, and it was all boys school. So I, I was like, well, there's going to be no girls there. Like, what, what am I supposed to do? Right. And that was just my mindset back then. And coming full circle, uh, a few years ago, it dawned on me that I, I remember going back to my coach and telling him my parents didn't want me to go to a school in that area. And, it, um, and you know, I lied to my coach. And, it, you know, it, it breaks my heart because, you know, he passed away in 2002 from stomach cancer. And, you know, he never really got to see me, you know, blossom, I would say. And so um, I moved here at, um, at 16 just to go to school. People think I always moved here to, to play basketball. I was just going to school. You know, I, I ran track. Um, I didn't play soccer as much, but basketball I played. I remember playing JV. And, you know, it was, uh, it was humbling because I didn't know what it was. I never experienced JV before in my life. I didn't know that there was, that was even a thing. And my first high school game was going to be against a childhood friend in the wild game. And, you know, I'm thinking we're going to go, we're going to go, you know, we're going to go head to head, match up against each other and play. And, um, right before um, we get ready to warm up, uh, I get a uh, coach calls me in the office and tells me, Hey, Here's, here's your jersey. I was like, this doesn't look like the varsity jersey. And he was like, yeah, because you're on junior varsity. Mm. And so, you know, that humbled me. Um, but it also lit a fire in me. It lit a fire in me. It motivated me to want to wanna overcome and, and try to do great things with, with this game. And, you know, that was one of the first instances where I allowed uh, something negative. I would, I would, I would receive as negative and allowed it to fuel my fire. And, you know, I remember just working hard and, you know, obviously my, my body began to develop. I was getting taller. I was, I was growing into my athleticism. And I was fortunate enough to get um, a scholarship to and led me to my colleges. How many schools did you get recruited by? I mean, you know, going to the Atlantic 10 is a pretty, you know, mid-major conference. Um, was there a lot of other? Was there any majors? Any mid majors? So for me, initially, it was always it was always low to somewhat mid major schools recruiting me. You know, I had a lot of A ten schools, um, NEC schools, CAA schools. Um, no, no real big East ACC, no Power Five conferences. And it wasn't until it wasn't until my senior year that I committed to George Washington. But then. Uh, UConn came, UConn and Boston College came. 
the kids only started playing basketball a few a few years prior. I wasn't going to be able to go to a school like that because I needed to develop. I needed to play, and I knew at Boston College at UConn I wasn't going to get that opportunity. Right. So I decided to go to GW. So out of, out, of, out of my personal curiosity, uh, I ran athletics in high school. Uh, what what uh, what events did you run? Like, you know, what was your what was your go to sport? A go to event. Um, well, the school I went to, um, I, w- I was the track team. So um, I would, <laughs> high jump was, is my, was my sport. When I was younger, I always hoped and thought I'd be an Olympian high jumper. You know, I was the two-time state champion in New Jersey. And, you know, I did high jump. But on that team, I did four by four. I did the javelin, the, the hurdles. Um, Anything, any event that they had available and needed somebody to do, I would do it. But high jump was my was definitely my focus. Let's talk about the transition from the UK to United States culturally. Um, that's a great question. You know, I think for others, or um, you know, people just making a move, uh, you know, they'll get homesick and it it become difficult. For me, I was so excited to come to the U.S. and, you know, obviously it's cliche, but live out that American dream. You know, I saw what coming to the U.S. I did for my brother. You know, he went to high school and got a scholarship to go to Washington State. And I was like, look, if I, if, if I can even do anything close to that, this, this opportunity would have been a success to get a degree. And even if I end up back in London, it's perfect. And so, you know, I, I didn't, the culture shock that hit me wasn't one of of the experience or just getting used. To, the only thing that that really was difficult for me was getting used to the education system. You know, we they they teach us a little differently and are on, are on a different system in the UK. And you know, getting used to that took a semester or two. Um, I had never wrote a ten page paper before. You know, the school I went to was you know pretty. It was a college preparatory school, and yeah. these kids are being groomed from from grade school all the way to when they graduate to go to an Ivy League school. And I'm coming in as a, a sophomore uh, and never, you know, did, all this experience was new to me. So not only did I have to, to try and make sure I could do well in class, I had to learn. I had to just work twice as hard just to understand the learning system before I could even receive the information correctly. So um, the big, that was the biggest culture shock for me. But other than that, I was so excited about what this what this opportunity was going to bring that I never allowed any you know any any um, like I said any culture shock to to slow me down and you know take me away from what I was trying to achieve. Bridging on from that, I want to ask you a uh, immigration question. Um, mm-hmm. a, um, a child of uh, immigrant parents, like we're coming from Jamaica over to America. Um, you, you have a Ghanaian background, even though you were born in the UK, right? Mm-hmm. So, I'm Ghanaian back heritage, born and raised in London. Right. So, so going to America, like, you know, were you on, uh, like, you know, green cards signed, like, you know, by your parents, uh, and then you went to school still as an immigrant? Like, what was that like? Um, so, back then, when you go to a school, they provide, a, 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 I guess, a student visa, which is essentially called an I-20. I-20 is 
what allows you to come to school in the United just school. It allows you to come to school in the United States and live here while you're in school. And it lasts however long you're going to be in school. And once you leave, that's when you have to start working on your immigrant status. So for me, you know, whenever I played, when I was playing in the NBA, I, it, was, it was always, uh, I think it's a P1, a P1 visa. And, you know, so when I went back and forth from, from Europe, because um, it was, you know, the season in Europe or the season in the NBA, the off-season isn't very long. So my, my visitor status, you know, never expired. And I had to continually keep getting that visa. Now I'm on my way to getting my green card. And, you know, it's, it's definitely a long, drawn-out process. But, you know, again, for what being over here and this opportunity has presented to me, you know, it's, it's, it, it doesn't really affect me that much. I always happen to, to, to run, you know, jump through hoops to make sure, you know, I'm in good standing. So of course, you know, the follow-up question then, um, with, with, with like all the talk of like, you know, build the wall and all this other stuff. Like, you know, how do you feel about that as like someone that both like loves the country in terms of the American dream, like you said before, and the reality of things now that you've gotten over there and lived and worked, et cetera. Um, again, this country was built on the backs of, of enslaved people. And, you know, nobody who lives here is, to an extent is essentially, this is their home. So for anybody to say somebody else is not welcome here is, is, is crazy to me. I mean, that's what this country is based on. It's built on being not built on or based, I should say. But this country now is, is a diverse country. And it's a melting pot and people come here for that dream. You know, people come here for a better life. They say it's the most powerful and developed country in the world. People are trying to escape to that so that they can find a way to have, um, to have, to live a decent life. You know, a lot of the places where people are coming from, this is, they don't get that opportunity. And, you know, it's, um, you know, being an immigrant myself, um, hearing, hearing that type of rhetoric is, is this, um, disheartening because people take heed to that. People believe that and people really, um, play on his words when he does that kind of things and that kind of thing. And, you know, it's just um, it's sad that we're in that case uh, stage in, in America. But, um, you know, such is life. We just have to figure out a way to combat that. Yeah. You know, Pop, it's, uh, it's one of those things, you know, you had a, a busy day yesterday. Uh, we text a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the, what's the feeling like in D.C. right now? Uh, it's calmed down a lot, Heath. I'm going to be honest with you. About two, two and a half, three weeks ago, it was it was pretty. It's, it's hard to put. You, have you seen the movie Purge? Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, I lied to you not. I would walk down the um, I would walk down the street, and it would just be empty. And this is downtown DC. Um, or I'd, I'd go for a bike ride or something, and the streets would be absolutely empty in the middle of the day, and. It's just so eerie to see that and to to experience it because now I live a few blocks away from where everything was happening. Yeah. You know, it's um, it's 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 a it's a tough experience, but again, it's necessary. Yeah. You know, think about the people who came before us, who you know our our, our parents, our you know our ancestors who went through you know slavery, who went through Jim Crow and civil rights and all that kind of stuff, like. 
this is just a, a, like it sucks that this is the case, but this is just uh, a moment in history where that has to happen. Otherwise, it's gonna the the cycle is gonna keep repeating itself. You know, just um, you know, think about the progression. Yeah, it may be a slow one, but the progression of of black people is is is, is slowly happening. You know, obviously, 50, 60 years ago, we were just fighting for our civil rights. And it was fighting for, you know, trying to get that equality. And, you know, we're still fighting for that. But it's, it's progressing. It's, we're seeing, you know, like you said about myself, we're seeing black people in high places. And, yeah. and you know, and being executives and being CEOs and all that kind of stuff. We're seeing that come to fruition now. We have to let us know. We have to get to the point where we can you know, we can all be looked at in the same light without racial bias and, right. you know, not fear for our life if we have an interaction with a cop. And, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, and it's, it's interesting, you know, with everything going on, the way different people handle this situation, especially, you know, our white counterparts or friends, they, they, um, I always tell, you know, my brother told me something that really opened my eyes to, racism and 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 you know racial bias you know he was like a lot of his white friends or white, white counterparts they they may not be racist may not have um prejudice against you know people of color but for the most part they're usually apathetic yeah apathetic in the sense that they're indifferent to the struggle and the plight and uh, the difficulties that come with being um of color in this country and so if it doesn't necessarily affect them, they, they can't, you know, they, can, they don't really speak on it. Again, they may not see a black person and judge them and, you know, um, look at them in a different way. But, um, you know, the apathy is something that they have to get over. And it's funny because even though I say there's apathy, even the most liberal and the most, um, yeah, the most liberal person out there, could have some racial bias. As we saw what happened in Central Park with um, Amy Cooper, you know, she's says she's from Canada, she's liberal, she's voted Democrat and this, that, and the third. And at the drop of a dime, she 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 went to her defense mechanism was I'm gonna call the cops on a black man and I'm gonna tell him about it. Because yeah. she knows how how wrong that could go. Right. How 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 bad that situation could be. And the fact that it, it was it was a trick, it, it just it, she just did it without being prompted, you know, shows you know how deeply rooted these these things are. These are people who you think are allies to our struggle or allies to what is going on in in the African American community, and just to see her do that, like you know, I'm glad Governor Cuomo came out and said um, that that should be made a hate crime. Yeah, when 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 the cops are falsely called on black people, it's called the Karen and the Kevin syndrome, uh, pops. Yeah. You know, all these Karens and Kevins just like you know calling cops for nothing. Right. Mm -hmm. There should definitely be a law like how there's like you know something called Megan's law about about uh, about child sex offenders. Sure. Exactly. There should be a Karen's law, like like no joke, no joke for real. Because no, I'm there. Yeah, it's dangerous. I'm it's with dangerous. You. Like you know, literally, she was trying to get that man's life in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, 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 she, and she saw what was going on with that. And, you know, it's, it, it's tough because, you know, we're experiencing it every day. But again, 
it's just necessary, you know. Um, riots are the is the voices of the unheard, okay. and now we're trying to be heard. And you know, when people say no justice, no peace, you have to listen carefully to the statement that they're saying. No justice, no peace. <laughs> this isn't peace. It's not going to be peaceful. I'm not saying that it should lead to looting and rioting. No, I think you know some people are going to be opportunists in this situation, but. This is part of it. This part of it, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm feel sorry for the black businesses that lost all of that lost business and had to struggle, um, you know, with what happened to their respective stores. But again, you know, think about what it's like being a black person in this country. Exactly. You know, so now it's time to downtrodden. I'm only going to take but so much, and yeah. you know, now it's the time to revolt. That's right. just where we are. So you know, there's a. Uh there's definitely an absence of empathy with our uh, so-called white allies, you know? Um, and there's, they've shown through every single movement, every subgroup, that there's really no intersectionality. I sent Pop a text yesterday, and he could have he definitely uh, disagreed with it, but I have this sense of anxiety living abroad and seeing everything that's going on and knowing that uh, those race soldiers are stockpiling guns and, and really positioning themselves for uh, a lot of harm, you know, and they're already harming us. So um, when I see people out there walking the streets without any type of protection, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a gob of people. I think it's, um, I, just get, I, I just get a little leery and afraid that something can happen. So, um, I've had a couple people, even my own family, I tell them, you know, stay in the house for right now. Like, you know, so. Um, yeah, no, I hear that, Heath. I definitely hear that. Get out there, you know, and, and, and we need to be out there and we do have a, a strong warrior class of young people. But I was telling uh, Marlon today and I told uh, my friend Emmy, who's on, that uh, there was a quote by Chris Hedges, who's like some socialist, you know, professor guy. But he had a great quote. He said, um, the revolution you cannot fight if you have a family. And, um, you know, our warrior class is doing a really good job, uh, both nationally and internationally around the world. But there's people like Pops and a couple other people, like, you know, my son or uh, some other people, I'm like, you know, sit this one out. So that's just my thoughts. No, I, I hear that. I definitely hear it. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm mindful and weary of it. And, you know, I think in this country, you get desensitized to tragic events happening. Yeah. And it just becomes, you know, you wake up in the morning, oh, there was another shooting. Like, you know, what else is new? Um, but again, I, I hear exactly what you're saying, Heath, but I always think back to, you know, the civil rights era, or even when, you know, our ancestors were going through slavery. Like, yeah. if, if, if not us, then who? You know, and I'm not, you know, I'm not even, I'm a very vocal person in that regard. But at the same time, just seeing this continually happen and understand that I'm a man with a son and, you know, I have daughters too. Like, I just, like, you know, again, it's all for people who are like, what are you going to say to your kids in 20 years when they ask you, what, what did you do? And, yeah. You know, there's, there's ways to do it. There's definitely ways to protest. I just felt like. You know, I haven't been at the front lines, but, you know, when our organization and the players led it, especially me being so pro-player, um, you know, I definitely wanted to support. And yes, you know, they were definitely, you know, there was a bunch of NBA 
players and WNBA players out there. They were not going to let anything happen to them. So I just stayed close to them. But it was, you know, I could see the tensions and everything building up, though. So you're definitely right in that regard. Yes, yeah, interesting. Regard, regarding the NBA players, um, you yourself took psychology as a major uh, in university. Mm -hmm. And um, how do you think that, like, the psychology of just, like, the events weighs on sports players, particularly in the NBA, like, being a majority uh, black league? I, like, you know, even more so than the NFL. Like, pretty much everybody in the NBA is black. You know, like, how, like, you know, how is that, how is that buzzing around, like, industry? I mean, it's, it's just look at what's going on right now. It's, um, it's um, you know, half the players want to come back and play and, you know, a portion of the players are, are concerned that coming back to play could be, could be um, distracting from this movement and, you know, flowing ideas about, um, you know, starting their own league and, and just, just holding more, holding, you know, the, the higher ups accountable. And, you know, that, that's, that shows what, what, how the NBA is looking at this or the NBA players, I should say. So, it's going to be interesting to see what happens, but you know, it's 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 one of those situations where, as a professional athlete, you feel like, am I doing enough? Like when even me, I I retired a year when Cap, you know, first started taking the knee. You know, hearing why he was taking the knee and what was happening to him, you know, I'm sure every most most athletes, especially ones of of color, um, were probably felt um, conflicted or even obligated to, like, what are you going to do? What is your way? One, one guy is in the process of giving up, giving up his whole career for the greater good. And, you know, I, I just look at, I look at the situation and I, I, I get it. Whichever way athletes feel, whether it's they don't know, they want, they want to put their foot in their mouth by, by speaking too emotional or they don't know if they're doing enough, you know, physically. And so I think that's, that's where players are. Some players feel like if we play, we can use that platform of the whole world watching us play basketball to, to continue to, to, to get to this, this common goal in this Black Lives Matter movement. Or some, some guys are going to be like, well, I don't want to have to focus on playing basketball at a time when we're being killed. But you know, some people will say we've been being we've been um, getting killed for for hundreds of years. You know, you know, the season starting now is not going to affect that. So I understand it on both sides. But you know, definitely feel like it's difficult as a professional athlete to um, to figure out how to use your platform. Very delicate. It sounds it sounds a bit like a rock and a hard place. Um, and you're in a special position, whereas you're not that far removed. Uh, mm -hmm. Like Mark Jackson, for instance, that's like you know, been an exec for a long time. You're not that far removed from the player status, so like that still feels very fresh for you, I'm sure. But now you're in, yeah. you know, you're in the front office, you know, so like you must be quite conflicted with that. Yeah, very much so for me. You know, I retired early. Um, I guess essentially, I mean, I'm 36, and <laughs> it's funny to say that people laugh when I tell them I'm retired, but I'm, I'm 36 now, and you know, there's guys who, when um, it's funny, my boy, JR, who's on the call, he could, he could tell you about this, but it's funny because I, when I first started, I, I was a pro scout with Spurs, and I had retired only a year or two prior, and now, uh, thank you, and now 
I have to write reports and do, um, you know, background checks on players who I played with and against and <laughs> tell my boss why these players should be on my team. And, you know, and the way I think, I'm like, I got to write a report on a dude who can't even guard me. And it was, it was, it was difficult. It was difficult at times. But, um, um, you know, it came with a process and I, and I understood that this was, um, this was bigger than me. You know, I, um, I, I definitely still see myself and always will see myself as a player first. I'm just a player in, in, a, in a position or, or, or one who's gone the road less traveled. You know, I saw a league that was 95% black. Um, uh, look at, looking at the leadership and the front, front office, it's the exact opposite, if not more so in the, in the, in the opposite. And, you know, I feel like that has to change. That, that has to change and, you know, why not be my boss when I was at the Players Association I got offered the job from Spurs and she was like, you'd be a fool not to take that job. You're always telling players to get into coaching, to get into to the front office um, and now it's your opportunity to do so. You got to be that example that you want to see in this world. So that's what kind of pushed me to, to end on this side as, as a player. And I feel like... Um and I hope to see more people like you that are taking that on because, I mean, that's what we're all asking for. We're all asking for representation. And now here you are, you actually step up and say, you know, instead of just like, you know, going out in the sunshine or, I don't know, like, you know, um, you know, becoming a, 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 a you know, business person in like another sense outside the league or, you know, you actually taking that position to say that, you know, we do have uh, executives of color here and that know exactly what the players are talking about and speaking for them. Yeah, I mean it's um, it's 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 um, it's interesting because you want you know I've always wanted to once I got on this side and it was like I knew this was where my purpose was or the path that I needed to go. It's always bigger than as you as an individual. And I, I even remember calling JR and telling him you know I'm kind of conflicted and you know I want to go back to play and and you know he's one he's a person that you know went out on his own terms and. You know, not every, and, you know, he decided to do that, which I admire. But, you know, to me, my career ended against my will. And, you know, I've always had that um, void that won't be filled. But again, being self-aware, being a realist, I understood that it's bigger than me. And thinking about um, why the, these signs that were just being thrown my way. Um, I was like, you know, I can, I can no longer ignore the signs. I can't ignore it. And, and I just decided to um, continue to listen and let, let go and let God. Because, again, obviously somebody was trying to tell me, you know, my impact and on the game wasn't going to be on the court. It was going to be off the court. And I had to accept that. So You had a position as an NBA ambassador, right? Something like that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, I still am. You know, they're starting the league in Africa, so... Right, right. Any African players who are in and amongst the NBA, you know, they use them as ambassadors. And, you know, being one of only two players of Ghanaian descent in the NBA, you know, it just comes with the territory. Amazing. So, Pops, you've played all over the world, man. Um, like, you know, so many countries. Uh, you know, tell us kind of about, like, uh, from the NBA, what, what that transition was like playing internationally. Um. 
so culturally, the transition wasn't difficult. You know, being of African descent and being and born, um, growing up in Europe, um, I was always, and in my experience moving to the U.S., I was always embracing and willing to adapt to my surroundings. So it always um, made things easier. Now, whether I wanted to be there is another question. You know, if I, you know, a couple of times, I remember when I got cut from Dallas, I was cut the same day my lease was up and I had to, and then I had to move out, um, relocate and then be in Venice two days later. You know, that was, that was probably the most difficult time. I remember I got to the hotel, this is 2008, 2007 or eight. Um, Got to the hotel, there was no internet, there was nothing. There was like two or three channels uh, in the in the room. And I just remember looking at the center like, man, this can't be life. You know, and um, that first world problems, don't get me wrong, but going from being on the, the best team in the NBA to now being in, in a part of Europe and, you know, I don't even have a way to call my family. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it humbles you and it allows you to, to look in the mirror. And I remember telling myself, you know, it took a few, took a few months being over there, but I was so consumed with getting back to the NBA that I didn't really, not, I want to say enjoy, I didn't really embrace the situation how I should have. Instead of trying to prove that I was an NBA player all the time, I, sh I should have just wanted to play the, be the best player I could be. And, you know, just, just take life as it comes and, and, and be where your feet are. And, you know, I, I took that mindset. I went back and forth from the NBA in Europe. And it's funny, when I got to Russia, I always, you know, depending on what team I was on, my experience overseas was usually a little bit more vast than, um, or extensive than some of my other teammates. And I, I find, and I get to Russia and I meet JR, we were teammates because we had met before. And, you know, I'm, I'm starting to tell him about my horror stories in, 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 in playing overseas. And he's like, yeah, well, my rookie year, you know, I only made this. And then we only had CNN. Um, they have no internet, didn't have no, um, had like eight roommates, uh, you know, because nobody could take it. And he told me he read the Bible from front to back. And twice, I think he did. And it, it really opened my eyes on, you know, I'm all, I'm over here in Venice, Italy, and, you know, playing on a good team that, you know, they paid us on time. And I'm over here complaining about stuff like that. And you got situations where guys are not making as much money and their situations is, is 10 times worse, but still persevere and get through. So that from that day forward, I told, told myself, I'm never going to complain to that guy again. Um, and but no, it, it humbles you and it, and it allowed me to look at life and, and those situations differently. So it was um, difficult at times. But once I once I you know, started to understand that I could still make you know, a great career for myself, whether it is in the NBA or not, um, you know, I started to to be more comfortable and try to blossom where I was planted. And that's what it was. That, that, that was my career overseas. Now, now. Now, Flight, if I can call you Flight. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> now, Flight, it wasn't all bad, I'm sure, because I've seen no, some... No, 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 not at all, actually. It was, it was a lot more good than bad. Let me set it up. I'll, mm -hmm. I've seen some amazing things 
that you've done with that basketball. And um, you kind of put like a, uh, a saying on there, like, yo, if Vince Carter can do it, I can do it. And I couldn't think of any original dunks, so I just did all his dunks in the game. <laughs> yeah. And to say yeah. Vince Carter, like, that's the height of dunking, like, acrobatics without a trampoline. And you were doing it. You know what's funny, uh, Marlon? For me, I started this game late, and I felt like the only way I was able to keep up at a young age was I was so athletic. And, um, you know, I started this game at 13, 12, 13. It could be eight, nine years, maybe 10 for some, um, after my, my teammates and counterparts. And I, man, it's, um, it was... Uh, it, it, it's just like I said about my schoolwork, I had to work twice as hard just to understand the system than work twice as hard to to excel in 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 the classroom. I, I felt the same when it came to basketball, but I knew if I knew I was always a, a, a decent athlete. And then it wasn't until I got to to college that I realized, you know, what I possessed or what I had wasn't common. And so when I, when, I, when, I, when I found my niche and realized what it was, you know, I wasn't a shooter or, you know, a, a, a skilled guy. I was the guy who was going to make it based on his work ethic and, um, you know, how tough I was. And so for me, I always, when I got in the court, I was like, for me to have an impact on this game, I got to show my athleticism. And that's, that's the approach I took. Vince Carter is somebody who, you know, athletically I always looked up to. And, you know, felt like, you know, when I realized I was, uh, uh, I wouldn't say that type of athlete, but an athlete, you know, that was close to that level, I, you know, I felt like, you know, I, I could do those things. And that's how I was going to, you know, bring entertainment to, um, to, to the game. And I remember JR, my teammate, once telling me, he's like, man, you don't have to duck everything. And I looked at him and I was like, well, yes, you do. <laughs> So, like, <laughs> that's what I know. So, and that's what I was going to do. But, uh, again, this is, um, I knew that's what was going to get me to the NBA. So, I had to make sure to, to play to my um, abilities. I'm glad you referenced JR. And I'm glad he's, in, he's on this call because uh, if I was, you know, if I had a crystal ball and I had you, let's say, at the Hun School or a GW or something like that, he would be a person that I would introduce you to. Um, he wrote a, uh, a memoir a few years ago, and um, even Blessed footsteps. Yeah, yeah, blessed yeah. footsteps. Shout out to that. That. Yeah. That, that really, yeah. Yeah. It was. It was funny because um, you're, re you know, researching you and and, and, and you know, hearing you speak right now, you guys became kindred spirits. I'm sure easily, you know, in in Russia because you had similar paths as far as being an underdog and just having to work extra hard. So. Um, that, that match right there was probably just a God-given match, just having an OG who probably had the same you, – you're walking in the same footsteps that he had just recently or previously walked in. Yeah, man, it's funny you say that, man, because Jaron and I had crossed paths a couple times before we, were like, officially, you know, met or were teammates. And, you know, we – again, I get to Russia. I'm coming from the NBA, so – you know, obviously I'm on my high horse and I'm realizing I'm joining, you know, the best team in Europe. 
and you know the organization is high level like they take care of us we, you know they give us apartments cars and you know we're always paid on time and i keep saying paid on time because anybody who knows anything about europe knows that a lot of the time those those countries they may not pay you on time or at all so you have to you know you know whenever a player uh who's somebody who's overseas references getting paid on time it was a, at least a, a decent situation they were in so you know i'm thinking you know i'm gonna come there and i'm gonna start and i'm gonna you know be the guy you know and just you know they're gonna they're gonna feature me but i'm not realizing this team is is you know it's europe but it's it's, it's stars these guys are loaded uh, they're loaded they're <laughs> loaded you know, coming in, I heard some of these names. I heard of Jr. And, you know, I played. I heard of Trajan Langdon's and Duke and played in the NBA. And but some of these other guys, I was like, well, I don't know who they are like that. So I, I don't know what the big all the commotions about. Like, just you know, well, I'm here now. Now it's time to start. You know, that's just what it is. And it, it went totally different from what I expected. Yeah. And, you know, Jay always feels like he's responsible for it because they knew putting him on the phone with me was going to be enough for me to want to join that team. Because he called me. I was like, oh, oh damn. They, they called him the big guns. And I was like, I, I'm there. You know, say no more. He said, we're going to go to the EuroLeague Final Four. We're going to win. And I was like, that's all I need to know. If I'm not in the NBA, I'm going to be at the highest level in Europe. And just over the course of that season, we were – I would say we because, you know, even he, he was tested a lot too. And seeing how he handled it and seeing and knowing his, his path and his story, it helped me. Um, but also let me know how human I was too because I, you know, I was having human moments often and I didn't know how to handle them. It was situations that were, were unfamiliar to me, um, especially in Europe. And, you know, I just... I, I, he kept me um, off the ledge a number of times. And when I saw him going through it too, I was like, you know what? Um, that's an example. And he always told me, never let them see you sweat. So, you know, although I, I didn't fully adhere to it until a few, a few years later on in my career. But, you know, at the time, you know, that, that I think that brought us closer. Um, you know, it's a talking point. We always, you know, if we're at dinner or in mixed company, it's always funny to, um, you know, bring it up because we can laugh at it now. At the time, you know, we wasn't really finding it funny. But that experience alone, again, it's another negative experience that happened to me that I used as motivation. I used as motivation to, again, to fuel my fire. And I think I remember when that season was over, I landed and you know normally we take a few weeks off to recover and you know just unwind i remember i landed and i was straight on the go i went right to the, i went home and i went right to the gym and then i played with the national team that summer and i was so motivated i was so motivated because of that experience that i was like never again am i going to be an experience like that and allow that to happen and it's not going to be and I knew it wasn't because of basketball, but I'm going to make it to the point where basketball is never going to be a question. And, you know, it, it just, it was a, a experience that I needed to have. You know, when you lose, you never lose the lesson. So it, um, it helped mold me and it helped, you know, go down, help me go down a path that, 
uh, at least on the court, that really um, set me off for the rest of my career. Speaking of players that you mesh with, um, tell us a bit about your relationship with Luol Deng. Yeah, and Luol and I, you know, we, I've known Luol, gosh, 20, almost 25 years now. You know, we, we knew each other in London, you know, and it's funny, the reason why we would do our lives and, you know, our little conversations was because one day my little brother came to me and told me, hey, um, I'm realizing now you guys have known each other for, you know, almost three decades. And although, um, you know, although your careers have gone very different, at some point in time, it's your life and your careers always ended up meeting back in the same place. You know, we, we, we were in London together and we come to the U.S. and my first high school game was against, you know, a close friend of mine. Then, you know, he's the number one player in the country. I'm trying to, I'm trying to just get a scholarship to go to college. And, you know, he, his decision was Duke or the NBA. And my decision was, am I even going to get a, a Division One scholarship? And, you know, I remember we met back up again. Um, you know, he had entered the draft after his freshman year. And finally, I had gotten to a level where I could enter the draft. And I entered the draft as a junior. And I remember coming back to him for advice on what I should do. Um, and then again, you know, just over the courses of our career, then when we started playing in the national team, our bond continued to grow. And, you know, that's why we felt like it was necessary to speak to it. Because although we have gotten to the same place to an extent, our paths were very different. And, you know, it brought us closer. And, you know, it's definitely um, a thing where our experiences, um, it's interesting to see different experiences, especially from where we came from. There was a game that you guys both snapped and, like, both scored, like, 30-plus points and just, like, when – and, like, you had, like, I think, like, 12 boards or something. Like, tell us about that game and, like, what was, what was the motivation just for, like, losing it? You talking about the wild myself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Britain, it was an overtime game, pops. I know exactly what you're talking about. It was um, I actually had 24 rebounds, but you know nobody's counting. <laughs> but um, it, it was funny. It's that's that's a result of what happened in Russia. Um, I, I got home and I, I I went straight to working out and um, working on my game, working on my body, and you know. I literally implementing some of the lessons I learned from JR. He was like, look, you woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning every day in the summer to work out. Now, I may not have gotten up that early, but my the discipline and the determination was there. And all I could think about was never allowing something like that to happen again. You know, and, and for those to give you context, when we was in Russia, I'm thinking as an NBA player, I'm going to join this team be the star, get the ball all the time, and, you know, lead them to a final, uh, you know, EuroLeague Final Four. And, you know, it, it went, it didn't go that way. And, um, <clears throat> and you know, that was, um, it was definitely humbling for me. But it was also infuriating. It was also motivating. And, you know, I took that pain and that aggression and I harnessed it through my work. And when I to reference the game you were playing, um, you were talking about, we were playing in European qualifiers and our Olympic, our Olympic um, fate 
was based on how we did in those competitions. You know, normally being the the home city, you get um, you get automatic bids to the Olympics. They didn't give basketball automatic bid. I had to qualify. We had to qualify for our own Olympics. So for two or three years, we had to show the IOC or the Olympic Committee that um, we were worthy of, of our automatic bid. And so that summer, you know, we played. We were playing against hum, uh, Bosnia, Hungary, Macedonia, and Israel, I think. And we, I uh, just remember, you know, again, every game I, um, I I played in that summer was was a little more motivation, a little more anger that I had. And that game, that game right there was was an, was the epitome of it. You know, we we came in and we knew that this team was gonna had an opportunity to beat us. And if we lost, that would probably seal our, our, our fate in the Olympics. And so um, we just went off. He was like, obviously, he was the offensive guy. And, you know, for me, again, like you said, I was the guy who physically felt like he could compete with anybody. And so, you know, I remember knowing that if both of us, if even one of us played well, we would have a chance to win. If we both play well, more often than not, we would put ourselves in a position to win a game. So, you know, I knew he was going to come bring it offensively. I was like, look, let me set the tone on, on the glass and defensively and, and then show them that they're not going to stop me or us from imposing our will on this game. And, you know, like you said, you know, I think between us, we scored 70 points and had like 40 rebounds. And, you know, that's definitely a defining moment in our careers and in just in my life in general because being able to tap into that emotion to to do something like that the whole summer was was new for me and again it was something I learned from my time in Russia and you know definitely tried not to walk around with that chip on my shoulder but I could tap into it whenever I wanted to yeah. Before, before we head to Ghana, because um, I can't wait till we get there, uh, how, how appreciated is Pops Mensah Banshu in the UK in regards to what he's accomplished? Heath, man, you're in my head, bro. I was going to ask him, like, I'm not even trying to, like, blow your head up, but, like, I didn't even know that Great Britain had a team until I heard Pops. Like, 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 dream team days, like, you know, when, like, Jordan and, like, you know, like, the dream team. Like you didn't hear about like you know Great Britain. You heard about Croatia. Not at all. So not at all. There was no. I mean, it, and then that's and that's part of the reason why, on the court and now in as an executive, I do what I do is because it was all about providing a mirror image to um, a younger generation yeah. to show them that where we came from, we can do this. You know, I came from London. You know, I wasn't even playing the sport. Right. You know, a few years later, I'm in the NBA. Like, this is, this is achievable. You know, you, you, it can be done. But trust me, it's not impossible. And now I'm trying to show the same thing in, in a suit and show them that this is, you know, we can, we can, you know, get to a higher level, not only on the court, but, um, you know, in the, in the boardroom or in, in, as an executive. And, you know, in regards to what you said, I think it's a little more glaring and, I wouldn't say disheartening, but saddening to an extent that, you know, Luau Deng at one point was the most successful and highest paid British athlete we had 
and we could walk down the street and nobody would notice him. And, you know, that's, that was fine for him because he's a humble guy. He doesn't really like a lot of attention, but, you know, it's just, it shows you how um, the lack of support or the lack of interest in sport from the governing body. Um, we're actually in the process of changing that, but at the same time, you know, there were situations where you would have, you know, Britain's most successful athlete, you know, in a situation somewhere and, you know, he wouldn't get the respect that he deserves or they wouldn't let us into the restaurant or club or something like that. And it was, you know, for me, I, I never look at it like what, what, what lack of notoriety or respect I get. I'm like, like this guy's an NBA all-star, African legend. And y'all don't know who he is or y'all don't like it's, but again, it's a culture thing. And I think it takes guys like Luau or myself to, to implement a foundation so that in the future, the culture can embrace and celebrate guys like that. And, you know, and I remember going, we were going back to London and, you know, we was in the gym and only a few kids noticed that, you know, NBA All-Star was in the gym. Wow. It, it just speaks to, um, and not to get all the way into it, but it speaks to um, a level of discrimination and racial issues that are in than in the uh, UK. You know, basketball is, is the number one played sport amongst ethnic minorities in Great Britain. It's the least funded. It's the least funded. Yeah. Wow. I'm talking about. Uh, we, will, we, we, we won't stay here, but I, I do want to uh, just add to that. And, and, and it stems from my question earlier about your appreciation in, in the UK. Um, we... Over here in Dubai, we, we have the, uh, the privilege and the luxury to mix with many cultures. And uh, many of our uh, black British uh, brothers and sisters, we have like some really good relationships with them. And I, I cherish them, I value them because um, it's, just a, it's just a great feeling to talk from, to uh, other melanated people from around the world. And sometimes I, you know, there's some, cultural collisions and vitriol and sentiment that I have to clear up with some of our brothers from around the world, even from the continent, right? Some stereotypes and things that I have to clear up. Mm -hmm. um, when we protest, sometimes there's like, well, why are you guys out, you know, doing this? Why are you guys out doing that? You have to explain to them what, what we're doing in purpose. So Idris Alba, I'm not sure if you saw the uh, clip from a couple years ago, Idris Alba had a um, meeting with parliament Yes. About, have you seen that? Where he talked about the discrimination in the uh, movie business. And that was James Bond situation, correct? I think it was before James Bond, actually. It was before the James Bond situation. I think it was before. Okay. But, I, but I, I could be, it could be around that time. Anyway, it, it had me, with all the conversations that we had, it had me start to think about Muhammad Ali, you know, um, you name it in the USA, right? Barack Obama and, you know, uh, even, even the entertainers, like the Idris Alvis, the Kevin Hart's and the Denzel Washington's. And I'm wondering, where is that, that social justice warrior that Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, coming out of the UK? Where is that person? Well, it's, 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 that's, I mean, that's a great point, I think. You're, it comes with the platform. If yeah. you have 
you know, I consider, I mean, I don't know how you deem somebody that or how they deem themselves that, I should say. But um, when you look at LeBron, you know, he's the most notable, notable athlete on the planet, you know, you know, best player or whatever. And when he says something, whether people listen or not, they hear it, you know. But as he has that platform, you know, with whatever little platform I have, you know, I try to speak to that. You know, I know Luau does the same thing. Um, but all we can do is speak to our network and our base. And again, I don't, um, back to my point about, you know, going out there to support the players in the march that we did. I do, we try to do whatever we can to, to help the movement along. Like we did those chats. And it wasn't for our entertainment. It was, it was us saying, hey, if one person watches this and, and learns from our experience and our travels and our path, then us having a conversation weekly, a weekly conversation has been a success. It turned out a lot bigger than that. And, you know, a lot more people, um, you know, a lot more people, people tuned in. And now, now it could potentially turn into a podcast. Um, yeah. You know, but again, it was trying to impact somebody's life. I love oh, it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was okay. on the yeah. I didn't know what it was, but when right. he said Pump was going live, I just jumped in and, and I stayed for, you know, the whole time. Well, I, that, I appreciate that. That's good to know. But again, it's us. It's us using our platform to, to, to speak. And somebody asked me, like, why I was so outspoken of late in the JR. I actually made a joke about it because he called to check on me this week. And I was like, look, if me speaking up and for my people um, about our struggles was going to put my job in jeopardy, then that's not the, that's not the job for me. Because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not, you know, doing anything that's um, egregious, nothing that's um, uh, offensive. Um, literally just speaking to the struggles of being black in America. And that's it. You know, when you, if you put out a fact, you can't, you know, the truth has no temperature. So again, you know, um, I'm, we, we're just speaking to, to what we go through. And so, you know, it's, I, I hear what you're saying about what, where, where is it, but, you know, we try, you know, everybody tries to, to be their own, you know, not everybody can be. Jim Brown or Muhammad Ali or even Colin Kaepernick. But we can all be stars in our role and, you know, speak to that. And I think um, whatever platform or base that you have, you know, you can inspire people, whether it's as, as little as one person or as many as thousands of people. So, yeah. you know, definitely, um, you know, continuing to, to fight that good fight, I guess. Right, and let me clarify, I asked that question because I see you, the work you're doing in the States. Um, I see, you know, of course, all the work you did, uh, whether it be the education you got and the uh, university you attended, and of course, your travels around the world. But then also Luau Dang, and then there's John Boyega, and then Idris Albus is in, Alger, uh, Idris Albus in The Wire, right? Mm -hmm. and, I'm, and when I saw him talk to Parliament, I was like, damn, I never thought about uh, and who's the Cynthia? Cynthia? Uh, Cynthia Arrivo. 
Rivos, right? She's making it big in the USA and Hollywood. So there's a lot of high-level talent like yourselves leaving the UK to to set up shop and make it in the in the uh, in the USA or, or or even in the continent. And I'm wondering. That's why I had to ask the question, and I'm glad you clarified that because um, I was looking at the data. There's only like a million in England. A million what? People of African descent. Uh, it's probably, a, I mean, the number's probably uh, arbitrary one or skewed one. I think there's a lot more than Good. that over time. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, I grew up with nothing but, you know, um, West uh, Caribbean or African people, um, you know, my whole life, and especially in London. And, you know, although we make up, um, you know, the, the population has grown, opportunities wasn't. And so again, it takes for guys like Luau, Idris, John Boyega, you know, Cynthia, myself, to 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 break that gap glass ceiling for that, you know. And I think to do so, you know, for the longest, just like I had to do and Luau had to do for basketball, we had to come to the U.S. to be successful, right? And then there's a term, there's a um, there's a a term and a Dinkra symbol called Sankofa in Ghana. And it's actually, it's, I don't know if you can see it, but that right there mm -hmm. is the Adinkra symbol. And it means to go back and get, or to reach back and get. And, you know, when, when we make, when people of color make it to a certain height or level, you know, it's now their social responsibility. Some people may not see it that way, but I do, to reach back and bring and pull up everybody, you know, his people. Yeah. The reason why as a GM, uh, um, I was so empowered to want to, to wanna get to this position is because to provide opportunities for people who look like me. Again, just opportunities. I tell people now it's not a handout. Just because I am a general manager and, you know, I can put people in positions, that doesn't mean I'm going to just put anybody there. You know, I'm going to give you a platform to succeed, whether it's on the court, whether it's as a coach or in the front office. I'm going to give you a platform. What you do when you get into that interview process in front of the rest of my staff and everything is going to determine when our friendship is going to kick in. If you go in there, do what you have to do, kill the interview, impress everybody, you know, then that's when I flex. And I'd be like, well, okay, that's done. But if you come in there and you're not, I'm not just going to be like, I'm not, I'm not going to overrule the sentiments or, or not read the room. You know, I'm, I'm very sensitive to how people, um, how the rest of my staff um, evaluate situations. And I make sure that um, I have everybody's point of view when it comes to that. So, you know, again, uh, this is about providing opportunities and trying to blaze a trail, trying to blaze a trail for other people that look like me so that in the future, the, the disparity isn't as much and that maybe there are instead of it being two or three uh, former players or former black players um, in the front office, it's, you know, 10. And then just can that, hopefully that number will continue to grow. And then in, in, in a few years from now and generations to come, this isn't, this isn't a conversation because it's just, you know, you know, all these companies are out here 
trying to balance or have more diversity and, you know, black people are getting put on boards left and right. I'm about to go stand in the middle of a GW campus and just walk around in a suit to be like, y'all got any more board board position, board spots open? Like, what are we doing? You'll be vice provost tomorrow. Right, right. Yeah, again, I feel, I feel like it's our duty to um, to get to that level and to, to, to help others get back. I want to ask you something else about the UK before we go to Ghana, Heath. I know that's next. That's next, I promise you. <laughs> um, I want to ask you something else about the UK because uh, when this whole thing kicked off in, um, in the States, uh, in terms of, in terms of uh, actually demonstrating in the streets and this kind of thing, um, some of my British friends were telling me here, like, oh, you know, hey, the one American that we know and maybe the one black American they know as well. So, you know, like the questions came to me, what's going on? What's this about? You know, like, why are they breaking things? And then it's like, oh, Americans are crazy. Then the very next week, it was a global thing. And then it's kicking off in London, yeah. Right, we're not innocent. We actually have blood on our hands as well. The Church of England, the Bank of England, et cetera, um, actually financed slavery and owned slaves and all those other things. Mm-hmm. Now that that's all coming out and coming to light, to be honest, all of those people are very quiet right now. How do you feel like your friends back in back in UK and London are like, you know, expressing this right now? Are they out in the streets? Um, and I'm sorry, right before you answer, uh, I want you as well to touch on this uh, at the last point. There's a there's a popular picture going around with a, a brother carrying a right wing protester from from mm-hmm. harm and danger, protecting him from harm and danger to get him out of there before he got damaged even more so tell us kind of just about how you feel this as a parent in the uk as it is in the united states if not more so because it's calmed down somewhat somewhat over here in the uk they're still pulling down statues and still destroying um any remnants of um slavery or slave of or colonialism to an extent mm-hmm. and it's you know it's um I think it's, it's finally a time, like, it sucks that <clears throat> it took somebody being choked for eight minutes and 46 seconds for the world for, to, to become a catalyst for the world to take action. You know, it started here, and everybody, then one person was empowered in the UK, and was like, you know what, this isn't right. And, man, they, they, they're, they're, they're out there. They flooded the, um, and the thing is, they knew all this stuff already. You know, those who win the wars get to write the history books, so... But we all know a lot of the stuff that, you know, especially in the UK, a lot of that, a lot of what happened in the US and across and in Africa was, you know, happened, you know, was based on, you know, you know, England, uh, Dutch, you know, and, and, and a few other countries who um, want to infiltrate the, the African market, whether it be the, the culture, the people, or the resources. And you know, it's, um, it's very apparent in the UK and people are, I'm getting pictures daily from friends showing that they were out there and, and that they were pulling down statues or they're still protesting. You know, luckily it's been, it's been peaceful to an extent and it, it just goes to show the mindset of us as a people to an extent that somebody who who is a right-wing protester. Like, someone said, you have to be a new, a new type of racist to protest against anti-racism. <laughs> like, you, you got to cut from a different cloth to, to, to protest that openly anyway. And, you know, people, 
there's no justice, no peace. So sometimes you're gonna run into some people um, on our side who are gonna be like, I'm not, I'm not here for it. You know, you've seen the term that you've you've messed with the, the last generation. You know, it's not gonna be turn the other cheek. It's, it's, I'm, you know, it's, it's, it sounds like it's a violent talk, but it's just the voices of the un, of of the downtrodden. And that's that's how that's all they can speak to now, and. It's indicative of who we are as a people that this guy was carrying somebody who has no reason to hate him, but uses every reason possible to do so. Somebody who, who hates you with a, with a passion, um, you still find it in your heart to get them out of harm's way. And, you know, that picture was, was powerful to show that. And it'd be interesting to see how that right that right winger um how that right winger what's it called the right winger reacts to that you know this guy essentially just saved your life this guy who you who you hate um for no reason um saved you took you out of harm's way and didn't think twice when it came to it either probably thinks that guy made him look cowardly like oh no like no i had myself you know i'm good you know he was gonna he was gonna get (laughs) severely hurt and that's why he pulled him out of there and the guy didn't stop him because if that's the case run back in there like it's nothing and no it was just he was protecting you and you know you know what's funny and and it's it's so glaring that you see it in you know depictions of enslaved movies where the biggest and strongest slave, you know, he probably wants to escape, but he sees the house is on fire. But if he, in his heart, he doesn't want to see somebody else receive pain. So he runs back in the burning house and carries out, you know, and saves the day and carries out the, the very person who oppressed him for so many years. And that's what that picture said. It said, you've, you've, you've been our oppressor for so long, but we still don't want to see that kind of pain um, inflicted on you. And it was, it spoke volumes, man. And, you know, it, it'd just be crazy to see if the guy who we saved still feels that uh, animosity, that hate towards us as a people. Because, you know, that's, again, it's a learned behavior. It's a learned behavior that we, that it's, it's, it's hard to understand. People say we can't understand what black people go through. It's not for you to understand that. Try understanding white supremacy. There's no, there's no yeah. reasoning behind it. No legitimate reasoning anyway. There's health professionals, professionals who are uh, writing, well, they're doing research right now, but they're writing a lot of uh, opt-eds and things about it becoming a mm-hmm. uh, mental illness, white supremacy. Wow. So um, they're literally going to You think it. so, though? You think, so, um, you think it's a mental illness? Because... Well, well what, they're, what they're trying to... They think that, uh, or they're trying to claim that whiteness as a thought process and social construct, um, just, just whiteness in general being an illness, like them having an issue, like it's the inferiority in the other direction. Like um, Dr. Frances Quest Welsing, uh, she just passed away in 2015. Her ISIS papers back in, I think it was 1973, she basically said they're scared. She calls it white genetic annihilation. But they are extremely scared that their species is being wiped out. So um, 
when you talk to, you know, when you hear Richard Spencer from the alt-right, when, they, when they're talking, they're basically saying exactly what her work was about. The world is getting a lot, a, a little too brown. So. Well, it's fear. It's fear. Yeah. I think, you know, if just looking at as Juneteenth yesterday and the fact that Juneteenth is even a thing, the fact that I mean, any of this is even a thing is crazy, but the fact that Juneteenth is two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, um, there were still enslaved people. Um, it speaks to that because the, your oppressor is never going to be like, oh, yeah, you're free. They were free and equal. They're not going to say you're free and equal. Yeah, no. And, 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 so, and so that's the thing, though. They, you know, equal talents deserve equal opportunities. Mm-hmm. And the way they see it, we're not equal to them. We're superior to them, which is why for them to elevate, they have to push us down. Mm-hmm. And again, like I can use the basketball analogy. If I'm better than somebody on the court, I don't have to do have to have to do all these other things to make sure that I'm going to win. When we go on the court, it'll, it'll just be the case. And I said it to say, if if you are uh, superior to us, then just let that be the case. Why do you have to, you know, to to use the systemic racism or implement, you know, the Thirteenth Amendment for us to keep us in under control? Like, why is that? Why is all of that necessary? Or and or or move the goalposts. Continually move the goalposts. Continually moving the goalposts. You know, right. you know, in one situation, it's. Um, you know, LeBron James and Katie need to shut up a dribble, but Drew Brees can express his his political views because he has them. Like, why is it, you know, so this is a double standard. But again, when they see, I like, we, we have to be twice as good to be equal. And, you know, looking at Barack Obama, like, like of all the, how easy it is for, for negative things to come out, especially on politicians, for him to go through, pretty much that whole process and still going, still in, in, in that situation unscathed. And, you know, no, his, his biggest scandal was the fact that he wore a tan suit. Right. Like, like, like Trump, like literally his whole, every week is something crazy. And no black man or even any other politician would have lasted um, to the, this long if that wasn't the case. So we always have to be twice as good just to be in the room or have a seat at the table because right. it's not an equal playing field. Um, I'm sure you've seen that video of the, it's like a PE class. And he was like, you know, we're going to play a game. If I, if, I, if I say something that pertains to you, take a step forward. And he's like, take a step forward if you have both your parents. Mm-hmm. You know, and it sucks, but 95% of the black students stood still and everybody else moved forward. And take a step forward if, you know, you've never had to worry about getting pulled over by a cop. Or, and he's saying all these instances, these things that in life, take, take a step forward if you've never had to worry about where your next meal is going to come from, if the lights are going to be on, if, you know, if you were going to have food or the clothes. And, like, you can see what's going on and the, the white students are looking back and see how far back their students are. And then he's like, go. Right. And run. And you just see the black kids just catching them and just be their, their, their athletes. They're all athletes too. So you just right. seeing them catching on their white counterparts. And he basically spoke about it was life. It was life. 
we, we, we're so far behind the eight ball that we have to, we're spending our whole lives playing catch up and you still try to hold us down and we're still, and you know, yes, that's why you hear so many success stories from black people because they may grow up without a father. They may grow up in a situation where they didn't have any money and all of a sudden, you know, the window of opportunity opens and they're in the NBA or the NFL or CEO. I like um I like what the sister said. Uh, the activist uh, Kimberly Jones. She said that uh, you broke the contract. You broke the contract. Yeah. So in terms of like um you know the the protesters burning the city down. She's like, we don't own this stuff. It's not ours. We don't care. It's not ours. So you broke the contract. That means that we're allowed to do what we're gonna do. And as far as I'm concerned, this whole thing can burn to the ground. It was just so like yeah. powerful, you know, like how she said that, and just, just, just like the like receipts that she came with, like this is like monopoly. Whereas we never get to pass go uh, to jail, and then you expect us yeah. to pass all the stuff. So yeah, um, man, it's, it's it's crazy. It's heavy. It's heavy, man. Wow, wow, I love that. I love that. Like I love that you don't shut up and dribble. I love that about you, brother. Mm-hmm. Oh no, no, never that. Never that. <laughs> <laughs> hey Heath, man, what's up with Ghana, bro? Hey, man. Pops, I looked for you, man. I was there, man, in December. Man, where were you, man? I was there, too, man. I was only there for two days, but I was there. I was there. I, 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 was, uh, I, I saw you on Instagram. I was like, man, I got to run into this guy. And there was, there was some people, actually some Global Brothers Podcast alums who was there as well. Uh, shout out really? to Rally, McKay. But, yeah, they, there, was a, there was so many people I saw. I mean, we interviewed Akon. And then I saw him in Ghana, right? So I just knew I was going to see you. And we, we didn't cross paths. You said two days? Yeah. I, was- Man, I think I got there the morning of the 31st and left the night of the 1st. I had a meeting and, you know, because I'm starting an academy and I'm starting a camp. So really, we were, I was meeting with, um, you know, Microsoft to try and um, shore that deal up. And I knew... Okay. Um, not being there was going to possibly make me go lose lose it. So I was there for two days. Right now, did you? Uh, where did you go for New Year's? Because uh, I was at um, and I'm forget the name now. It's a beach, uh, hotel beach. So oh, I was there. I ended up there too. I saw. I thought I, when I saw the picture, I said, "I think I missed him because I was there as well." Yeah. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Yeah. There were so many people there. It was going to be hard to catch up if I didn't know you were there too. It was. It was. Yeah. So Next let's time. talk. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I'll be back in December. My visa, um, I got a, a two-year visa, so I'll be back in December. Okay. Question, uh, well, God willing, right? We never know. Right. Uh, yeah, with, this, with this COVID, you never know what's going to happen. Question, year of return, man. Give us your thoughts um, and, and thoughts about it as well as the outcome and, and beyond the return. Um, and the year of return is special. Yeah. And it's necessary, I think. I'm all about analogies. If you look at the Black Panther and look at Killmonger and T'Challa, you know, you think Killmonger is this um, villain that, um, you know, is just, just, just bitter and just, just out to get everyone. But at the end of the movie, he, and hopefully everybody's seen the movie, he's, you know, he's dying and he's like, I can help you. And he's like, no bury me in the ocean with my ancestors who felt like death was better than bondage. And when I hear him say that, it brings the whole movie together for me. I understand now that Wakanda is basically Africa. Yes. Without colonialism. 
Right. And it shows how Africa has got this great, rich land and this, um, you know, this this rich culture and the people, and they got this 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 resource in um and and vibranium that you know the whole world wants. It's basically what Africa was before you know it was infiltrated, and you know, Killmonger is African Americans. It's felt like African Americans have had to go through Jim Crow, slavery, um, civil rights movement, everything that's going on, and it's they've been struggling over here, and you got this rich land, and they didn't reach back and get them. So all you see is his pain the whole time, and they have no identity to an extent. How I see the year of return is it's allowing people to have that identity back, to have that rich history, that rich culture, that heritage back that they once yearned for. Because if they look at their family tree, it's going to start with um, a slave owner. And that's not the beginning of our history. The beginning of our history is on the motherland. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the best way I could, um, I could put it because I feel with Ghana opening up its borders and its arms to any and everybody, anyone of the diaspora is um, letting them know that, hey, this is your land too. This is, this is your people too. This is your history. You have to know this. You know, I went back to the, to the slave castle there and I see my last name is up there. Yeah. You know, yeah, I see it and it's crazy to see that. This is hundreds of years ago. And that's how far back, you know, my family's name has gone and seeing that and knowing that they were part of the people who were trying to fight off the, um, you know, the, the colonials and, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's empowering. It's, 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 it's tough at times to know what they had to go through. There's some people who only knew slavery. They didn't know anything else outside of life, outside of that life. And, um, you know, it's, um, it's, it's definitely difficult to see. But, you know, at the same time, we, we have to know this history. And that's what the Year of Return is providing to people, giving them the identity, <coughs> excuse me, that they once lacked. Now you have you have uh, you have two brothers, all right? Three, three brothers. Excuse me. Were you guys able to share that together, or like have you been to Ghana together before? As like all you guys are boys. My first ever trip to Ghana was with Luau and my oldest brother. So this next time, the t the time I went, the few times I've gone since inside that camp, um, I took my brother and my sister. So we haven't all collectively gone. I think we're, we're going to be in the process of doing that one year. Um, but I've been with each one of my siblings at a different time. And, um, you know, it's, it's, like I said, it's special. I think being there with my mom and my dad was the most special, you know, because they didn't, it's weird growing up in, in the UK. <clears throat> they didn't think we, um, we embraced our culture. So when my mother saw me wearing traditional cloth or kente, you know, you know, always wearing, you know, my my dinka symbol, she was like, I didn't know. I just didn't know you you really liked that kind of stuff or that that stuff meant a lot to you because you know just where you grew up and everything. And I was like, no, this is like knowing the history and knowing what it means is 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 big for me, and I. You know, it's, it's good to see my mom, you know, feeling proud that her kids are embracing, 
their true culture. So it was definitely, um, you know, good to have had that experience with family. You got a you got a necklace to something else. Like you kind of like kind of brushed it off like you no know, my Dickerson, but your necklace is something else, bro. That's, that's a serious piece of hardware. Which one are you talking? About? The one I got on or a different one? Uh, it's like a ram. Like I saw it. I saw it. Yeah. In the it's like a ram or something, but like the chain's real long. Like uh, you know, like you're from. Yeah. Home. So it's um. So tell us so my uncle. Yeah. My uncle is uh the essentially the Ashanti king, in um in Ghana and. You know, it's, it's one of the more powerful positions in the whole country, even next to the president. And, you know, having somebody in your family in that role is, is, is a big deal. And I remember I was in South Africa and this artist, you know, I told you, you know, we were talking and I didn't know he was an artist. We were just talking about art and, you know, my history and where, where my family was from. And, you know, I say, yeah, my uncle, the, the Shanti King, he says, what? And then he goes in the back and brings out this necklace, this gold necklace, which has a little baby ram on it. And, you know, it, it's like, it's the, it's like, the, the, it's like a, it looked like a brick. It, it, that's how big it was. And um, he was like, it'd be my honor to give it to you. I was like, I can't take this. And he was like, please, no, you, it's, you have to have it. And so, he, so I, you know, I was like, you know what, just take some cash. And I gave him some cash and gave it to me. And it was the NBA Africa game. And we were supposed to wear, like, a designated polo or something. And I wore that with a, a Kente shirt because I was like, we're in Africa. And it's the first time there's going to be a, an NBA All-Star game in Africa. Nah. I'm, <laughs> I'm putting on. And... <laughs> And, and I wore it, and I wore it, and people were like, man, this is the most beautiful thing we've ever seen. And the learning, when I showed my mom and dad what he gave me, my mom already knew what it was. She was like, they, they have a ram because rams um, is a sign of, a, it's a sign of authority and power, but rams are also very humble at the same time. And so, you know, seeing that, I was like, man, I, I've only worn it twice, and I always like keep it in the boat. Because again, it's not as special, but you know, only on special occasions do I would I bring it out. But it's definitely um, a part of my my history and heritage that I you know that I embrace the most and love it. Not the Nori moment. My man said his uncle is the king, son, and everybody just like was quiet. Like, wait, what? Like it's like like, like coming to America. He's like he got his own money. He got his own money. <laughs> Yeah, I've heard that part before. That's you know, it's funny, Pop, when we were in, uh, we were at JR's wedding, and um, we had some of the currency down there. When I saw Nanny, that lady, the warrior, our ancestor Nanny on the money, and all those other ancestors, I was like, wow. You know, when you go to another country and you see the currency, it's Maybe. beautiful. When are you going back? When are you, I'm sure you, at the GM, you're always in Africa, right? Recruiting and trying to find talent. To an extent. Yeah, to an extent, but um, you know, the camp is supposed to to happen in August, and um, you know, if the border is still closed in the next couple of weeks, then I'll probably have to cancel the camp for this year and focus on uh, I'm postponing it or just moving it back to, to next year. Yeah. Wow. I told Heath that I saw I saw a uh, a brother. That, like on one of the groups I'm a part of, like a Pan African group uh, on our WhatsApp, and just a guy in a village. 
Yeah, I think uh, I think he's in Ghana. Yeah, Ghana village, and he's about seven foot five or something, he's super tall, and he's a he's a car mechanic, young kid, yeah. car mechanic, just doing that, and like. I'm just like, yo, he needs to meet somebody like you, you know, and just like, Yeah, it's funny, man. You'll see that, like, if you go to, like, South Sudan or Senegal. Right. Like, I remember there was a, they, my, the head of the NBA Africa sent me a picture. It was a guy who was, like, I guess the janitor. Right. He was, like, fixing a, fixing a basket. And the guy, the basket was on the ground, so it's the backboard. So just, like, this little rectangle you see there. And the guy had his arms open, and his he could grab both ends of the backboard with his arms. Now, if anybody doesn't know that 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 thing is like seven, eight feet wide, yeah. and he's he's just grabbing it, and he's not even playing basketball. He's the guy fixing fixing things, and he was like seven feet tall. Like so, you see that all the time on the condo. That's why you know the NBA is over there. That's why everybody's invested in that because they see. The MVP, most improved player. You know, some of the best players in the NBA are of African descent, and they want to make sure they don't miss miss out on that next one. Yeah, yeah. There's another Hakeem Olajuwon over there, right? For sure. <laughs> I can say, how difficult is it to like develop a player that like hasn't played college ball or any kind of ball at all? Just just has height and potential natural ability. How difficult is it to, to like develop someone? I think, uh, especially when it comes to African players, I don't think it's that difficult at all. Look at, look at Pascal Siakam's story. Look at Joel Embiid's story. Look at Giannis Antetokounmpo. There's, um, there's something in, in their blood or in their makeup that allows them to develop faster. You know, they start the gameplay, but develop faster. We saw how Giannis came into the league, how he looked, and then how he is now. He's one of the best players. He's, he's arguably the best player in the NBA. Greek you know, and then you look at Joel Embiid, like he, how he looked as a as a as a, a, a junior in high school to how he is now is totally different. Pascal Siakam was funny story. When I was at the Players Association, he was one of my my rookies at um, rookie transition camp, and he was forty three, and I wore forty four at Toronto, and he was like, he comes up to me, he's like, man, they said I could be like. Uh, of a, a version of you, and I wasn't even that. I'm not a good. I had a a good stand, a good time in Toronto, but I, I wasn't, you know, nowhere near what Pascal Siakam has done. And the fact that he's telling me that we played it like at a young age, and he's, you know, an NBA champion and now an NBA All Star, that just shows how much he's developed in a short time. And it just speaks to what you're talking about the development of players. If they have the resources and the infrastructure. They'll, they'll, they'll blossom. Amazing. Yo, we got some questions in the chat, Heath. Yes, yeah, because we got to let we got to let this uh, this uh, GM, you know, manager get to work, man. <laughs> this is so good, though. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like, we always have such amazing guests on, and I don't know, like, what it is about this platform, just like, you know, like brings it out of people. They're just like at home with us. So, like, we love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Pops Global Brothers podcast was birthed uh, last April, and we have over thirty. Uh, shows and so many people who who have uh, just helped us build. Most we appreciate that. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, which which question you want to start with? There's a lot in here. We got to let this guy. Go. Well, we always got to start with our favorite person, Trey Lou. Trey Lou. Okay. <laughs> so she says, um, she says, pops. Money and status seems to change the way people of color are treated. 
How has that experience been for you post NBA? Um, it sucks, but you know, it runs the world. You know, people. You know, when you when you speak with somebody, they usually ask you what you what you do, or you know who you work for, and that's to determine the level of respect that they're going to give you. And it sucks that we do this. I'm sure we've all experienced it, or done, or have even done it before. But um, it's um, yeah, it's, it sucks, but that's the case. You know, we we don't get a certain level of respect until we've reached a certain status, and you know. A lot of players in this generation have understood that. I understood that, knowing that if I'm able to get on the front office side, I'm in those rooms, and I'm I'm part of the 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 process. And if I'm able to speak up in that situation, then I can use what level of respect I receive based on whatever status I have or whatever wealth I've been able to acquire. Um, Although it's something that you should should be given, you know, regardless. But it sucks that that's the case. But for those who have those opportunities, that's why I always say it's our social responsibility to, um, you know, do the most with those opportunities and reach back um, for others um, when we get there because they're not going to be afford, afforded that ability. You know, so a guy called me and it was it's the first time I've thought about it like this. He was talking about you can't have a black CEO if you don't have a black intern. A lot of companies um, hire within. Now his daughter, you know, he he's very self-aware and understood that his daughter was born into wealth, and you know she could always go to the best schools and whatnot. And that internship that only pays eight dollars an hour for twenty hours a week in Salt Lake City, a black kid that's still paying off student loans. Um, that can't live off $8 an hour for 20 hours a week, it's probably not going to be able to, to take that internship. But on the flip side, his white daughter, who was born into privilege and can subsidize that with the, the, the money from her family, can do those jobs and have a couple of those things on the resume. And, you know, she's already ahead of the game. Whereas, you know, people of color are going to have to struggle and find ways to, to make ends meet or work two or three jobs to do so just to have that internship. And it's, it's difficult and this is not an even playing field. So, you know, definitely um, feel like we have to have more of us in those situations to just give those opportunities to, to people who look like us. Mm -hmm. And make it conducive to, so they, they can actually sustain that position. For sure, for sure. Wow. We would, we would be remiss if we didn't do this one last question because it's very um, important, not just to basketball, but like obviously, um, you know, this brother touched a lot of people's lives and um, it kind of started off like the crazy year that we're having. Um, you know, of course, I'm talking about Kobe Bryant. Uh, how did that, how did that news kind of like affect you? Because um, I saw that you played against him, I think, in uh um, like a international game. Um, just like, what did he mean to you? And you know, just like you know, kind of, kind of, kind of let us in on that. Um, you know what I learned um, about Kobe was, you know, now being in a pos an executive position and having uh, a bunch of young players, like seeing how distraught they were and how difficult they, that was for them. You know, prove that 
You know, he was their modern day Jordan. You know, you know, these kids were 10, 15 years ago, that's who they were looking at. That's who they were copying. That's who's who shot they were emulating. And, you know, I just saw the tears, I saw the difficulty, and then I realized that, you know, to um to uh, I realized just our experiences and, you know, being glad that, you know, they would play against him, guard him in the NBA and then at the Olympics too. Um, you know, it's, it's tough to see because you never really are able to give people their flowers when they're here. And you realize how much of an impact he's had on the culture, the people, and the game itself is, you know, it's tough. It, it, it was tough then. And it's weird because someone said they had a picture of Kobe stepping out of a car and it was like, this is how I hope 2021 starts, begins. Because it just doesn't seem like um, like a it just seems like a bad nightmare, you know. Just everything is just happening. Everything that's going on so far is like man, this year has been difficult. And you know, it's, I think it's Kobe was one of the was the first thing that kind of started kicked it off. And you know, with his daughter dying too, that was that being a father that was the most difficult to uh, endure. But um, you know, it's good to see that he was loved. It's good to see that. Um, the impact he's had on the game and, you know, just seeing guys like LeBron and the other the close friends that he had. And I seen those guys cry uh, at his, you know, when they, when they, you know, paid his, paid respects to him in the game, that was pretty powerful to see his peers and, you know, grown men, you know, brought to tears and really struck, struck because, um, you know, he passed away. So, you know, it was, it was a difficult situation still is, but, you know, I think the best way to, to honor those who are no longer with us is to, um, you know, keep their their legacies alive and, you know, live the way they would have wanted us to live. And even Michael Jordan said, you know, like he like lost a little brother. For sure. For sure. For sure. I can see that. Uh, this guy's given us almost two hours, man. And, um, Man, we really appreciate this, man. I'm going to hit you off offline in a couple of days and check in with mm -hmm. you. I'm really interested in the work that you're doing uh, in Ghana. Um, Ghana will be the place where I will live, okay? I'm putting it out there in the universe. Um, that's the place where I will live and I will be. Trust me. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. This was absolutely amazing. Yeah, we're going to be hitting you up for sure, brother. Like, you know, I feel like, I feel like, I feel like we bonded. Now I, know, now I know the king's nephew. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> Yo, as we always say at this time, live global and prosper. Thank you. Thank you, man. Appreciate you guys for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, have a good one. Please. Check us out on YouTube, Global Brothers Podcast. And please subscribe and share and, you know, continue to support, you know, good yeah. time. Thanks, everybody. Mr. Worldwide!